Good evening, Revolution. How's everybody doing tonight? I'm going to pass out some more of those hand clappers. That was awesome. Hey, my name is Justin Clark, and I'm a part of the leadership team here at Revolution. Thank you guys so much for joining us. Um, really, only a couple of announcements tonight, um, and then I'll pray, and then Pastor Matt will be up here to continue teaching with you guys. Um, free market is going to be May the 18th. That's fast approaching. It's a couple weeks away. Um, we need you guys to get your stuff here as quickly as possible. You need to bring it here. Um, you can get with me, Ryan, Matt, set up time to drop it off, or you can drop it off at Christ Community Church um, uh, Monday, uh, Tuesday through Friday. There'll be somebody there in the office. You can drop it off there in their gymnasium. That's another drop site that we're going to have for the local churches who are participating in free markets. So, um, and again, there are sign-up sheets over here by the door to my right, your left. Um, if you want to sign up to help and you say, hey, you know what, I don't know what you need me to do, um, but I'm willing to give some time, just put your name on there. Um, Katie will talk to you and get you squared away with a way you can volunteer and get plugged into that uh, ministry that we do here. And then um, I have another announcement that is, I'm blanked right now. Okay. Nursery. Corey's not going to let me leave without making the nursery announcement. We still need seven volunteers um, to put their name in the nursery rotation. And if, and if we get seven, that means you're only going to have to do it a few times a year. So um, our hope is that we can free you up as much as possible, be here and be a part of our worship service. So if God um, has blessed you with the desire to interact with small children um, or you, your wife wants you to go do that with her, um, please sign up for the nursery and um, we would really appreciate that. So with that, I'm going to pray and then Pastor Matt's going to come up here um, and preach to us tonight. We're really excited about that. Dear Heavenly Father, we just pray that um, as a body of broken people, a group of folks who say, you know what, Lord, we fall short. We miss the mark every day that we know that not only do we have your grace, that you sent your son to die for us so that we have a hope. We have more than that hope, but we have a responsibility to live in response to the gospel in a way that projects Christ Jesus into this world. And I just pray that as, as Matt teaches tonight and as we worship you in song, that we see you on your throne, that we feel compelled in our heart through the Holy Spirit to live in response to your gospel in a way that people look at our lives and say, you know what, that person has something different. What does that person have? And that people will just see Christ Jesus through our actions. And it's our goal, it's our single goal here to make much of you and make less of ourselves. It's in your name we pray. Amen. How are we doing, Revolution? Wow. First postgraduate service, we lose a huge chunk of our audience, and you guys sound better than we did at full staff. Way to go. Um, It is that time of year when we have to knuckle down. It's always kind of bittersweet when we see people who have been coming to Revolution for two to four years um, graduate and, and, and move on. Um, they come here, they learn, and then they are rude enough to graduate and go get jobs. Um, but but we're, we are happy for them. It's been really cool over the last five years to watch the people that have come and, and, and moved on to see what they're doing. Like in August, I'll be doing a wedding for a couple that that came here and, and moved on to Columbus. And, and we have people like Ray Noble, who, who's studying actually become a New Testament scholar you know, after coming to Revolution, and that's really, really cool. Um, I pray that one day God will give us the ability to bring, drag Ray back here to teach Greek and New Testament background in the free seminary classes. Um, um, But it is still sad to see so many people um, go, and more people tonight told me that this is like their last weekend here, or they'll be moving on soon. And we will pray for them, 
and we're sad to see them go. But in the meantime, we are continuing through the Gospel of Mark. And so if you want to turn there, if, if we're going to be going through uh, Mark 13 tonight. Um, so if you have your own Bible, go to Mark 13. If you're using one of the blue Bibles, that's page 609. Uh, and as always, if you do not own a Bible... Or if the Bible you have, when you read through it, it just it doesn't click with you. It, it, just, it just doesn't connect with you. And you like this Bible, take it with you. It is our gift to you. We're glad for you to have it. Now, tonight, as we look at Mark 13, we're looking at a controversial passage in the sense that there are all kinds of different interpretations of this chapter. Um, you go to five different churches, you will get six different interpretations of exactly what is going on here. Um, Now, just so you know, um, my prejudice is that the early Christians were more likely to have this right than we are. And so when I look at controversial passages, I try to look at as many like first and second century documents talking about this passage as possible to try to get a bead on it. And so that's where I'll be coming from. And we may have some disagreements on this. You may come from a background where you're like, no, 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 this is about this or that. That's okay. Um, At the end of the day, I think that we need to land on the same place, same spot, and that's what's really important. So let's look at Mark 13. Um, As Jesus was leaving the temple that day, one of his disciples said, Teacher, look at these magnificent buildings. He's talking about the temple and the temple complexes around it. Look at the impressive stones in the wall. Now, it's very rare that Mark does not name the the disciple who is speaking, which leads a lot of people to think that he's speaking about Judas. Okay? Um, And and so there, there became a tradition in early Christianity where Judas's name became so cursed that you wouldn't even repeat it, and maybe that's what who is speaking. Jesus replied, verse 2, Yes, look at these great buildings, but they will be completely demolished. Not one stone will be left on top of another. Now, at this time, when Jesus is walking through the temple complex in Jerusalem, the temple had been under construction for more than 50 years, uh, and it was not anywhere near done. Herod and his children had, had incredible plans for building the temple beyond what Solomon had. And, and that's what's going on. And so, you know, they've just gone through this period where Jesus has pronounced judgment on the temple. You remember that? He's in the courtyard. He's overturning. You know, and he's, he had the fig tree. He's pronouncing judgment. And so it's maybe Judas, you know, raising the point that, hey, 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 wait a minute. You're being a little hasty here. You're being a little judgmental, Jesus. Look at this. Isn't it fantastic? Isn't it great what God has done? And he says, yeah, it's pretty impressive, but um, none of this stuff's going to last. And we know that, in fact, the temple is nearly completely leveled in 66 A.D. In 60, or, or excuse me, 64 A.D., in 60 A.D., uh, Israel rebels against Rome. They lead an armed rebellion against Rome, and they're temporarily successful. But as happens in political movements, they begin to argue with each other. They begin to, they begin to fracture. They begin to move. And so they, when Rome comes back under um, General Titus to fight, they're now too splintered to fight back as one. And as a result, they end up taking the temple. And in fact, when they take the temple and they demolish it, it's so nasty. As I've told, told you before, 
when Titus destroys Jerusalem, the rumor is, Josephus says, who was a Jewish historian, the blood was ankle deep in the streets of Jerusalem, that they killed that many people. Verse 3, and that's what he's referring to. Later, Jesus sat on the Mount of Olives across the valley from the temple. Peter, James, John, and Andrew came to him privately and asked, Tell us when all this will happen. What sign will show us these things are about to be fulfilled? Now, many people look at that and they think that they're talking about the end of time. But what was Jesus just referring to? Judas brings up the temple. Jesus replies the temple will be leveled. The disciples, some of the disciples come to him and say, when will these things happen? What are they talking about? They're talking about the destruction of the temple, right? This just follows. And so keep that in mind as, as we begin to read through. Verse 5, Jesus replied, don't let anyone mislead you. For many will come in my name, claiming, I am the Messiah. They will deceive many. And indeed this happens. In 60 AD, many people claim to be the Messiah. In 132 AD, the rabbis proclaim a guy named Bar Kokhba the Messiah. And both of those rebellions end badly. So what Jesus is saying will come to fruition either within the disciples' lifetime or within those who are first reading these these words as they're written down. Verse 7, And you will hear of wars and threats of wars, but don't panic. Yes, these things must take place, but the end won't follow immediately. Again, what is he talking about? He's still talking about the destruction of the temple. Nation will go to war against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in many parts of the world as well as famines. But this is only the first of the birth pains with more to come. Again, you will see many TV preachers and stuff say this is talking about the end of the world. But what is he talking about? He's talking about the destruction of the temple. He's very clear on that. And in fact, we know there was a famine during the reign of Caesar Claudius. There were earthquakes in 61 AD throughout the Roman Empire. So, again, he's just talking about then. Verse 9. When these things begin to happen, watch out. Now, most of you know that the New Testament was not written in English. Right? You do know that, I hope. The Bible did not fall into our laps in leather-bound, red-letter edition with a nice little ribbon. It did not come down that way. The New Testament is written largely in Greek. Right? So, and Greek, ancient Greek especially is a little difficult to translate um, for, for no other reason than this. If you write a sentence, okay, I taught one semester of freshman English at Shawnee State University. I will go to heaven for that, if nothing else. <laughs> and, and what I learned there was this. People don't seem to get this. It, when you write a sentence, the easiest way to do that is you have subject, verb, object, right? That's typically how we structure our sentences in English. That's the easiest way to do it. Subject, verb, object. In Greek, you can do object, verb, subject. You can do subject, object, verb. You can arrange it however you want, which is confusing. And then you get words. If you've ever learned a foreign language, you know that there are certain words that do not translate into English at all. And, and that's the same in Greek. It's very, very difficult 
to translate. And some scholars have said a better translation is this, is, 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 is Jesus saying, your mind must be clear. And that is a, a faithful translation of the Greek. Your mind must be clear. And what he's saying is, don't be utopian. Don't, don't think that paradise is coming anytime soon. There will be hardships. Hardships are coming, and they will come in your lifetime. The rest of verse 9. You will be handed over to the local councils and beaten in the synagogues. Never hear Joel Osteen preach that, do you? You will stand trial before governors and kings because you are my followers. But this will be your opportunity to tell them about me. Is he setting a pretty high standard here? Do you see this? He is telling his disciples, you will be persecuted, you will be beaten, you will be tortured, you will be threatened with death, and this is an opportunity. How many people can build a church on that message? Right? And yet, this is what Jesus does. He raises the bar up here. He says, if you want to follow me, this is the cost. And if you're not willing to pay that, there's the door. And he's not losing sleep over the people who leave. Verse 10. For the good news must be preached to all nations... But when you are arrested and stand trial, don't worry in advance about what to say. Just what God tells you at that time. For it is not you who will be speaking, but the Holy Spirit. Persecution is always an opportunity. People who stand up under persecution and refuse to bend and say, this is the gospel of Jesus Christ, have more credibility. Do they not? Right? Today, where we live, somebody gets up and preaches the gospel of Jesus Christ. There's always this thing in the back of their head, what's in it for them? Fame, money. But here, they give up everything. Everything. Right? This is what it costs. Persecution is an opportunity. Now... Don't get me wrong. That does not mean you should welcome persecution. Anybody who prays for persecution on the church is, um, in Greek it would be, stupid. That's just dumb. To pray for people to suffer is not to love your neighbor. Right? But, that being said, in fact, in Acts it says that it, the church grows when, the pe- when peace comes. When the peace comes... That's when the church goes. When, when Paul quits persecuting people and nobody else is willing to step up, peace comes on the church, the church grows. That's what we need to pray for. But, Jesus says, that being said, there will be times of persecution. That will come upon you. And it's an opportunity. Verse 14. The day is coming when you will see the sacrilegious object that causes desecration standing where he shall not, should not be. Reader, pay attention. Then those in Judea must flee to the hills. A couple things there. One. Jesus did not say, reader, pay attention. He was speaking to his disciples. This is, Mark is inserting this. Okay? And, 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 and so, why does he want people to pay attention when he's writing in like 50 AD, when he's writing nearly 2,000 years ago? Because he thinks this is going to happen 2,000 years from now? No. He's still talking about then. And, and when the early church interpreted this, here's what happened. In 60 A.D., when Israel rebelled against Rome, the early church interpreted this passage as, the Romans are coming, let's get out of town. The Romans were coming, Titus was going to put a statue of himself in the temple. Nero had threatened the same thing. 
That's what means by the desecration. They're talking about a false idol in the temple. And the early church interpreted this as, we need to get out of here, run to the hills. This is not going to go well. And that's what happened. When Rome came, Christians fled. They fled to Syria, which is north of Israel, while Israel fought its suicide mission against the Romans. Now, they had no chance of winning that. But guess what happened after they lost? Who do you think they blamed for their loss? The Christians. They blamed Christians. Ridiculous. But that's what happened, and this would uh, precipitate a huge break between Christianity and Judaism. Verse 15. This is how serious it was. Jesus says, A person out on the deck of a roof must not go down into the house to pack. A person out in the field must not return even to get a coat. How terrible it would be for a pregnant woman and for nursing mothers in those days. Again, blood ankle deep. And pray that your flight will not be in winter, for there will be greater anguish in those days than at any time since God created the world, and it will never be so great again. In fact, unless the Lord shortens that time of calamity, not a single person will survive. And the Romans claim not a single person in Jerusalem did survive. But for the sake of his chosen ones, he has shortened those days. Again, talking about that rebellion. What does that have to do with us? We'll return to that in a minute. Verse 21. Then if anyone tells you, look, here is the Messiah, or there he is, don't believe it. For false messiahs and false prophets will rise up and perform signs and wonders so as to deceive. If possible, even God's chosen ones. So even those who call themselves Christians will end up following these false messiahs in 60 and in 132 A.D. Watch out. I have warned you about this ahead of time. At that time, after the anguish of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will give no light, the stars will fall from the sky, and the powers in heaven will be shaken. Then everyone will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds with great power and glory. And he will send out his angels to gather his chosen ones from all over the world, from the farthest ends of the earth and heaven. Is he still talking about 60 to 64 AD? Yes, he is. Because what happens is this. When God talks, Jesus talks about coming in judgment. He's not always talking about his second coming when he comes to rule. When you go to the book of Revelation, the first three chapters, he says, I'm coming to this church. I am coming upon judgment upon you. And what he means is, I'm coming in judgment upon that church. Jesus is still active. He is still here. He still comes. He still judges. It's not his bodily second coming when he comes to reign, but he is still active in his creation. He still judges. And he is saying that, and the clouds were considered the chariots of the God. He's saying, I'm coming on a chariot. Come on a chariot means you were a king coming to war. And he's saying, I am coming to allow the Romans to do this to you. This will be my judgment. Do not think that the Romans coming to you and destroying Jerusalem and destroying the temple is a random historical act. It is me. I am telling them to do this. I am in control. And so it is today. God still judges. Jesus still judges churches. Jesus still judges nations. Now, we need to be careful about this because the Bible doesn't tell us when this happens. But it does happen. I get as mad as anybody else when somebody like Pat Robertson goes on TV and says September 11th was our fault because of yada, yada, yada. My question is, did God bring you up to the heavenly throne and fill you in on this? If not, shut your pie hole. Maybe it was, maybe it wasn't. You don't know. Yes, God still does that. But unless I see it in the Bible, I don't want to hear it. 
But he does say when this happens in Jerusalem, because the leaders of the Jewish religion rejected Jesus, this is judgment. This is judgment for rejecting Jesus. Verse 28. Now learn a lesson from the fig tree. Remember this from a few weeks ago. When its branches bud and its leaves begin to sprout, you know that summer is near. In the same way, when you see all these things taking place, you know that his return is very near, right at the door. I tell you the truth, this generation will not pass from the scene before all these things take place. Again, does that tell you when this is happening? He's saying, this generation, you people, will not die until this takes place. And in the Greek, that means, you people will not die until this takes place. He's talking about then. Not in the future. Do you see that? Heaven and earth will disappear, but my words will never disappear. However, no one knows the day or hour when these things will happen. Not even the angels in heaven or the Son himself. Only the Father knows. And since you don't know when, all, when the time will come, be on guard, stay alert. The coming of the Son of Man can be illustrated by the story of a man going on a long trip. When he left home, he gave each of his slaves instructions about the work they were to do. And he told the gatekeeper to watch for his return. You too must keep watch. For you don't know when the master of the household will return. In the evening, at midnight, before dawn, or at daybreak. Don't let him find you sleeping when he arrives without warning. I say to you what I say to everyone. Watch for him. Now, at this point, is he talking about his second coming? Or is he talking about judgment upon nations? Or is he talking about his judgment upon Jerusalem? What is he talking about? He's talking about all of it. Does anyone here know when they're going to die? Do you have an expiration date stamped on you anywhere? No one knows when that is going to happen. And nearly all of us here have lost loved ones. We did not think that totally came out of the dark. We did not think that would happen. And he is saying, as we see in Matthew and other places, that his second coming will be the same way. See, a tradition has developed in the last few hundred years, and it's just in the last few hundred years, that there will be all these things take place, there will be a rapture, then there will be seven years of tribulation, and then Jesus will return. Now, if you believe that, fine. The only problem with that is that's a fairly new kid on the block. That's about 200 years old. Christianity is about 2,000 years old. I'm very skeptical that guys like Paul, Augustine, Martin Luther, John Calvin just missed this. Right? The whole idea of a pre-tribulation rapture comes from an English lawyer. For goodness sakes, coming from a lawyer, that should be enough for you to be skeptical. He got mad at his pastor. He said, I think I have a better way to interpret the Bible. He wrote it out. He sold it to a, to a Texas oil billionaire who created what's called the Schofield Bible. And the next thing you know, and then Billy Graham really liked it. He started, he started preaching, and he became the most popular preacher. So it became the most popular interpretation of Scripture. And then you get the Left Behind books, and then you get Kirk Cameron movies. And that's how that unfolded. But until that happened, nobody in Christianity believed that. Nobody. The early Christians who went to the lions did not believe that Jesus would rapture them before bad stuff took place. They didn't believe it. Augustine, a theologian and preacher who may have been the smartest guy between Paul and Martin Luther ever to crack open the Bible, did not believe that. Never spoke about it. 
And he read the book of Revelation in Greek. Now, again, if that's what you believe, fine. But you're a pretty new kid on the block. The early Christians believed this. Jesus would come in judgment at any time. And that no one but the Father knew when that would happen. As he says again and again in the Gospels. And there's no second chance. See, I think one of the reasons why we really love the whole idea of a pre-tribulation rapture, and again, if you believe that, I don't care. But I think one of the reasons we really like that is this, we get a second chance. The whole idea of pre-tribulation rapture is Jesus comes and takes his believers secretly away. They just disappear and leave everybody else on earth for seven years. And what's strange is if you read like the bad books, nobody understands what has happened. Despite the fact that the LaHaye book sold like millions of copies, everybody's going, hey, what just happened? Everybody just disappeared. Does that make any sense at all? Isn't somebody going to pick up the LaHaye book and go, oh, hey, look, I figured it out. Right? And do you really believe God is going to just make everyone disappear in their cars, which turns them into missiles, and everybody's just going to be like, wow, those Christians are really good at magic. I don't think so. That just doesn't make any sense, Right? It didn't make any sense to me. And none of the early Christians thought that way. They thought, Jesus is going to come. The heavens will open. Trumpets will sound. Jesus will be there. You're on the left. You're on the right. If you're on the right, you're in good shape. If you're on their left, you're in really bad condition. Done. And Jesus reigns for eternity, on earth, end of story. That's it. That's how the early Christians saw it. That's how Martin Luther saw it. That's how John Calvin saw it. That's how Jonathan Edwards saw it. On and on and on and on. That was it. No second chance. Now, I understand that the pre-trib rapture, whole seven years, all kind of stuff isn't easy. I was... When I was a little kid, um, maybe my son's age, seven or eight years old, there was all this talk on television about the fact that all the planets were aligned for like the first time in 500 years, and we were boycotting the Olympics, and Russia was, you know, threatening nuclear war. There used to be this... Russia didn't used to be like just another third world country. They were like the bad guys, for those of you who don't remember communism. Um, and, and, and so we had that thing going on. And I, I remember my older sister, God bless her heart, talking about this could be the end. And Jesus could be coming. And I remember thinking, what if he doesn't come for me? What if he takes my mom and dad and leaves this poor eight-year-old in Wheelersburg, Ohio, all by himself, with a half a box of Cocoa Puffs. <laughs> and I'm all by myself. And the effect that has on an eight-year-old is you become afraid of Jesus. 
And it's really weird for an eight-year-old to, be, to have nightmares and be like, Jesus is coming to get me. I mean, that's really, really weird. I, I don't think that's how it's going to break down. I don't like movies, and we had this movie when I was a kid. I can't remember the name of it. It was really bad. It was produced by Billy Graham, who's a good guy, but um, I remember seeing the movie, and it was like a real literal interpretation of the book of Revelation to the point the four horsemen were actually horsemen in like the 21st century. I'm not sure like CNN's going to break in and like horsemen are riding in Africa. That's going to make news. There's a guy on a red horse. And... But in the movie, it's like they're breaking in to say, you know, like somebody's riding on a horse and he's got a sword and he looks angry. We would say, okay, that's a Renaissance fair, you know, whatever. (laughs) You know, it was this real literal interpretation. It made no sense to me, but it did scare me to where I actually was like afraid of this rapture thing. And of Jesus and of God. We spend so much time talking about that in Christianity. There are so many people that have like entire ministries devoted to just that issue. And maybe that's where you're at. And maybe you're sitting there thinking he's crazy because my youth minister or preacher grew up telling me about the rapture. Okay, I don't care. You can believe that. That's not heavy doctrine. We have open-handed issues here at Revolution. We have closed-handed issues. Closed-handed issues are things we're not going to... We're going to fight about. Open-handed issues are things we're not going to fight about. This is one of those things we're not going to fight about. You believe whatever you want. But... The message of the Bible is not how Jesus is going to return, when Jesus is going to return. The message, core message of the Bible is this. That even when Jesus is pronouncing judgment upon Jerusalem, in the Gospel of Matthew, he says, nonetheless, I would die for all of them. He says, these people who are going to kill me, these people who are going to curse me, these people who are going to reject me, these people who are going to ignore my advice and go to war with Rome because they think God's mission for them is to rule over the rest of the world... I would die for them. He says, I I would gather them under me like a hen gathers its chicks. That is a Hebrew way of saying it was something that would happen on a farm. On a farm, and everybody in Israel basically was a farmer. Everybody had chickens. And what happened when a barnyard fire would break out is the mother hen would go and gather all its chicks under itself. And after the fire burned through, you would find a burned hen, and underneath the burned hen, you would find live chickens. The mother hen would die to save the children. And Jesus is saying, when he's looking at the Mount of Olives, which looks just at the temple, eye level, in the Gospel of Matthew, he says, I'd die for all of them. All those people who are about ready to curse me, spit on me, beat me, nail me to a cross, I'd die for all of them. I would gather them under my wings and die for them. And that is the message that continues today. All of us who spit in Jesus' face, all of us who continue to sin, all of those 
who, who become addicted to things online we shouldn't be watching. All those things who become addicted to substances. All those things who steal. All those things, people who lie. All those people who cheat. All those people who every single day just seem, as every thought, they just cannot escape selfishness and sin. He says, I will die for you. I will gather you under myself, and I will go to the cross to take your punishment to save you. And yes, he will return. But in my opinion, he's not saying when. It'll just happen. Done. And for those who have come to him with nothing to offer him at all, they get an eternity with God. And that's the message of the New Testament. It's not... It's not how he returned, when he returned, who's the Antichrist, all that kind of stuff. It's that God himself went to the cross for you to pay the punishment for your sins. That is the message of Scripture. We can disagree all day long about pre-trib, mid-trib, post-trib, pre-millennial, amillennial, post-millennial, all that other kind of stuff that's popped up in the last few hundred years. But the one thing we need to agree on is this. That if you come to faith in Jesus Christ, your punishment is paid. Your life has been lived for you. And the life you have now until the time you meet your maker is just time to say, thank you. I love you with everything you do. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you. First of all, we thank you for the graduates who have come and gone. We pray for them. We ask that you will be with them, that you will go with them, that you will guide them. We ask that the people here this summer, the few of us as we gather over the next few months, will continue to study your word, grow closer to you, that your spirit will invade us, that sin will decrease, that our honor for you and our lives will increase, that we will love other people, that we will constantly keep before us the fact that you died on our behalf, that that is what we will agree on, and that all the other issues how you return, when you return, what Bible to read, what music to play, all that other kind of stuff, that that will fade into the background, that that will be secondary, that we will unify under this banner, the gospel of Jesus Christ, that we will preach it in love and truth, and that if we do that, everything else will fall into place. We praise you and thank you, and we now stand to worship you in Jesus' name. Amen.